Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Well, good morning. Well, this is my favorite day, actually. I think I'll vote a whole year, practically. I want to welcome you here. If you're here for the first time, this is what we entitle our homecoming. This is our fall launch, and we have a picnic that follows this and activities for the kids and everything else, so whether you plan on it or not, forget your lunch plans. Panera sucks anyway, so just join us, okay? We're going to have free food, drink, everything you want afterwards. Uh, just following this service is a single service at 11 o'clock, which begs the question, how many of you are attending, generally speaking, the first service. So actually, stand up. Let's just see you for a minute. I'm curious how you all are. Okay, stand up. These, are first. These guys made the sacrifice today, okay? So, blessings on you. Okay, now let's just take a quick peek. Second service, take a stand. Yeah, 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 yeah. You guys are the ones that sleep in. Okay, have a seat. This is great to have people that you may have been worshiping in the same church for years and don't know. So here's a real opportunity. Please hang out afterwards. Stop at the picnic. Get to know some people and hang out for a little bit. A couple of quick announcements. We have nursery that started back up today for the first time. We have Bridges, our ministry to uh, parents with children with disabilities. That has also began today for the very first time. Um, Axiom, well, this season at least, Axiom has kicked off. Our youth ministry, uh, Light Company, a ministry of 20-somethings has kicked off and is running hard right now. So these are some of the things that have happened that are taking place. One quick note, we have someone who, as part of a process of, of earning something that they're earning, um, is constructing something on their own time and, and cost for us. Uh, I think it's a fire pit or so out at the patio area. But they need to raise their own funds as well. And so if you want to help with this, um, it's something being done for the church, gratis. If you want to help with this, just they're going to be in a bottle drive. So next Sunday, if you just want to bring whatever cans, bottles you have, and just scatter them all over the park. No, just put them in a bag. <laughs> Put them in a nice bag and just leave them at your car. If you just leave them at your car or on your car, people will find them during the service and take care of that so you can contribute to that. Now, one other quick thing here before we have offering this morning here is this. Some of you have been very observant, may be aware that we have various art pieces throughout congregation or throughout the sanctuary or area or the church that have been constructed by our own artists. One of those was constructed 16 years ago when we expanded the building facility and after the, the ground break, everyone took stakes, put their names on them, and a scripture and pounded them into the ground with a uh, 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 surveyor's cloth coming off the top. Once we were finished with that, we actually constructed the building, we collected all those stakes, and we made them into an art piece that has been in the sanctuary for 16 years. And it is a representation of the body of Christ um, with Christ at the center. And so we took all those, and they were put together and shellacked and put together into this thing. Not all the names got up there. Not all the stakes got up My, my stake didn't get up there, and I've been bitter for 16 years. Um, <laughs> no. Not all of them got up there. But it's been a representation to us of the church gathered with Christ the center. If you've been observant, and I don't know if they have control of the lighting up there, if they know what they're all doing. The way to the right next to the house. 
All the way to the right next to the house lights, he's saying. You can try it. Not that one. There. There you go. Okay, keep going, keep going. Bring it up, bring it up. Bring it up all the way. There you go. Okay. You'll have noticed that we've done something here, and this is to mark what I believe to be the third, for one of a better term, epoch or period of time of the church. The first one being when we launched Rock Point back in 94. The second one being in uh, 2005-6 when we constructed the building and we did some pretty radical change here. And I believe there's a third one that's in place that's coming here right now. And this is in part to represent, we'll talk more about this later time. I'll just let you know right now that it's to represent three distinct generations within our church centered around Christ. And that's all I'm going to tell you about right now. But I do want to acknowledge our artists. They're not only artists, they're also uh, some of our musicians. I don't know where Chris Snack is at. Is he, he's one of our drummers. Chris, are you around here somewhere? Where are you at, Chris? 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 You said you'd be here. He's actually probably out helping out back, isn't he? Okay, he's out back helping. So, Chris, thanks. Um, <laughs> but Josh Lakowski, who's led this project, stand up, Josh. He's, he's under the balcony in the back there with his parents. also one of our guitarists, and so they've created this along with a lot of the other art pieces that you see throughout the building. So just want to mark that. We'll discuss that a little bit later. So here's one of the deals, is if you've just come brand new into this church and have had no sense of identity in the last year with anything else, realize that you're now represented uh, by this piece of art, if you, so, if you so choose to do so. Before I begin to speak today, I have something else that I'd like us to take a moment of time and to recognize. And I was, uh, yes, great, you were, t- I didn't see you hiding behind me there. Um, many of you know Rob Marcus. If you don't know Rob Marcus, um, Robert is an experience. Um, I've known Rob now for what has been uh, more than half our lives, actually, together at this point in time. Um, so that'd be like 10 years. Um, now it's been for like 37 years. And um, there's a little bit of a change going on. Rob is going to be stepping off staff. He's going to continue to remain on our elders and is going to uh, continue to serve in different areas. He's going to continue to maintain his pastoral credentials, so he'll be free to marry, bury, and do the occasional bar mitzvah. Um, <laughs> but I didn't want this moment to pass without recognition because the reality is um, Rob has carried practically every role within the church, including nursery, at one point in time. And so I thought we should take a moment uh, in this single service to acknowledge that. And I wanted to begin with a little bit of a history of, of Rob. Rob, very early on, wouldn't start off as a Christian. He was actually in a New Age mysticism and was known for his capacity to astral project himself. Um, <laughs> that is a shocking picture, isn't it? Um, in addition to that, he got into a biker club, uh, was kind of into some rough stuff there for a period of time. But eventually, Robert actually found the Bible and began to read it, and, uh, and it changed his life. Um, anyways, eventually it changed him into the man that we know and love today. Um, a lot of you don't know, uh, Rob and I began a youth ministry here. I was the first youth pastor in this church uh, ways back. 
And uh, Rob was um, not an associate of mine. He was a partner of mine and uh, actually uh, managed the youth for uh, a season of time when I was completing my graduate studies in Chicago. And one of the things we did as a youth group, we were pretty uh, intense in those days, and we actually had a, a Christian musical we put together. And because it involved some dance moves, we couldn't do it in the church And so at that time. So we did it at uh, Ford High School and, um, and, and presented that to the community out there. And uh, Rob was an angel, believe it or not, in this. Uh, that is Rick Camiso <laughs> in the middle and his sister Sue um, off to the side there. Um, Rob also, a background many of you don't know, is he actually uh, had like eight years, I think it was, or so, a piano when he was younger. And a lot of you don't realize, but Rob was actually one of our primary singers on stage for a number of years uh, with a phenomenal voice. Over the years, he's been involved with a lot of humorous things, a lot of sketches. He and Greg Mead were Hans and Franz for I don't know how long. <laughs> Um, he was involved in children's ministry uh, for a number of different ways and years. Every area of the church, like I say, he has served at one time or another. Um, his involvement with children didn't happen just with our area here, but uh, he's ministered to children literally around the world uh, in Guatemala, El Salvador, different places. Um, he would always find kids that would just follow him uh, practically anywhere as he'd just go along, just connect. Rob has this unusual ability just to connect with practically anybody. He is one of the most um, uh, touchable human beings I think you're going to find. Now, he also headed up a lot of our, our missions teams, and some of you have seen pictures of his work. He'd meet friends everywhere uh, and make them all over the places in Senegal, actually. But some of you also would see that he'd actually, uh, um, well, actually, you know what? He could make friends with practically anybody, in fact. <laughs> I asked Rob about that, and he said the bird just showed up. I mean, he just sat down there, literally. Um, he was also involved, though, in a lot of our missions teams. A lot of you have been on missions projects with him uh, in different countries, different places. And there's a lot of pictures that have been created over the years, most of them like this one, okay, which if you look closely, I mean, this is awesome, isn't it? I mean, he's got this grinder, and he's cutting block and everything else, but if you look closely, you realize it's not plugged in. <laughs> this was the first of a variety of, of staged pictures of Rob working, Okay. <laughs> And there's been a lot of jokes said about that over the years, but the reality was, uh, up until a recent time period, um, Rob actually set the bar, and a lot of times was doing some of the hardest work and some of the most intense work um, that was possible. He led by example. Uh, this one particular, particularly here, is you know, aside from the stage of he was in the pit, he's digging. He was intense on top of all these things. <sighs> Rob has ministered on behalf of this church and on behalf of Christ from Great Britain to over five years that we worked in Russia before and after the fall of communism, the Philippines, El Salvador, Guatemala, Costa Rica, Senegal. He's worked in all these areas but has always been a part of this church. He is a warrior. He is a strong leader. He is versatile, adaptable, faithful, one of the most honest men of God that I know. And I think it's appropriate. Now, Rob has asked that I not have him say anything, and I was so tempted to ignore that. But I'll acknowledge that. In fact, Rob's here right now for a second or two because he'll leave again because he's been coordinating the entire crew out there that's going to feed you all. Okay, so he's coordinating that whole crew out there. <laughs> Rob, come up. Thank you. Thank you. 
Now, this is, as, as his friend, this is particularly delicious for me because he absolutely hates this stuff. <laughs> so, um, but I want to just say on behalf of this congregation, uh, I, I know you're not going anywhere. I know you're continuing to serve elders. I know there's a lot of other roles and other things that will be going on and other projects, but we couldn't let this moment go past. Thank you. You're a good man, Rob, and thank you for your service. I know you still have things to do. He's actually going to run out there and take care of things. So we're going to release him one more time. We just recognize, please, Rob Matthews. Okay, I'm done. Um, I, I'm, this is the first time that I've spoken in like six weeks, and, uh, uh, and there's been things that have been stored up for a long time in my heart and mind, and I'm hoping that I can place them all within the framework of which we're discussing here today. I'm reminded of the story of the old country preacher, and, and there's this blizzard that happens, and, and one morning only one lonely farmer shows up for um, the service. And he says to the farmer, well, you know, what should we do? And the farmer says, well, I take a load of feed out to the, to the uh, field, and, and even if there's only one cow, cow there, I, I feed that cow. So the pastor says, okay. So he winds up, gets into it. I mean, we were talking four or five hymnals, an offering, a, an hour-long message, an altar call, the whole thing. When it's all done, he asks the guy, so what do you think? And the farmer says, well, if I take the feed out to the pasture and only one cow shows up, I feed him. But, sir, I don't dump the whole load, okay? <laughs> I fear that today I will be dumping the whole load. Um, There is a phrase, a term, that is actually drawn from literature, and the term is quixotic. And the term quixotic means um, exceedingly idealistic, unrealistic, and impractical. A vast and perhaps quixotic project, ambitious, ambitiously idealistic is what it means. If it was to be used in a sentence, it could go like this, although Jack's plan for killing the giant was quixotic. It was the village's only hope. We know how that one worked out. Henry knew running for class president was a quixotic idea, but he was not going to let his enemy run unopposed. Now, the passage of scripture that has been dwelling on my mind that we have been discussing as staff for months now and have taken apart in so many different ways that I want to present to you today is the beginning of our conversation for this next season of time. This is not a singular message. This is to set the framework for a conversation that is designed to transform this church and our community moving forward. It is known as the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's an incredible statement. Therefore, go, it's a directive, and make disciples of all nations. No, he doesn't say make converts. He says make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. A quixotic endeavor, if there ever was one, to go into all the world, to transform the world, to disciple the world, to see a change in the basic nature of mankind and his structures. Surely an ambitious, idealistic consideration. 
There's a statistic that I came across recently that has haunted me. It's a study that was done recently by some Christian um, statisticians. And the study basically is saying this, that 51%, and there's a a chart I have here, if you can find that one, 50% of the American population, if you consider that 100%, 51% profess to be Christian. But, but catch what's being said here. 51% of the nation is confessing this. But only 6% of the 51, which means 6% of 100%. So 6% of those stating they're Christians have a worldview that is basically Christian. Now, in our conversation on staff, we said, okay, we know how stats are. Stats are sometimes a little inaccurate or a little, you know, they can be fudged or they can be a little off by a variation of a percentage or so. So let's take a look at that. If, if we were to, shifting to this next one, if we were to take that 6% and multiply it by 2, let's say they're off by a factor of 2, we, need, we get 12%. If we have a factor of 3, uh, it's 18. 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, we have to get to a factor of 9% or 9 times that to be able to get to a majority of the Christians that have a Christian or biblical worldview. That is incredibly disturbing. We're not talking about the world anymore. We're talking about the church in this country. We're talking about our church, potentially, within this country. What does it say when we use a label? You know, it doesn't have any meaning anymore. I referenced this to two of our 20-somethings, and, and one of them had a, had a great first response. The first response he said was, if, if that is true, then the majority of the country's view of Christianity is this 51%. It's not the 6%. In other words, they're seeing a a, a Christianity that's not real. I said, that's brilliantly insightful. Another one of our 20-somethings who has heard me say time and again and has referenced uh, Martin Luther King's statement that the church is not to be the slave of the state, it is not to be the master of the state, but the church is to be the conscience of the state. He made the comment, what happens when there's no conscience anymore then? What happens to a country when there's no conscience? This study showed that while majority of Americans, Christians, um, identify as evangelical or as believing in Christ, more than half, the vast majority of these, reject all the biblical teachings. Strong majorities um, believe that religious faiths are of all equal value. That is not a biblical review. The people are basically good. Any of you ever seen a two-year-old? <laughs> the people can use acts of goodness to earn their way into heaven. Show the majority of them don't believe in moral absolutes, but they consider feelings and experience or the input of friends and families. is their most trusted source of moral guidance. Our current generation thinks with their feelings, if it doesn't feel good, it can't be right. All these 
positions challenge a biblical worldview. The author of the study said, too often it seems people who are simply religious are regular churchgoers, regular churchgoers, or perhaps people who want a certain reputation or image embrace the label of Christian regardless of their spiritual life and intentions. Christian has become somewhat of a generic term rather than a name that reflects a deep commitment to a passionately pursuing and being like Jesus. Let's, let's, let's even slow this down a bit. What, what is a worldview? A worldview is a framework from which we view reality and make sense of life and the world. It's how we view things. It's any ideology, philosophy, theology, movement, or religion that provides an overarching approach to understanding God, the world, and man's relationships to God and the world. For example, a two-year-old believes that he or she is the center of the universe. A secular humanist believes that the material world is all that exists. And a Buddhist believes that he can be liberated from suffering by self-purification. A biblical worldview is based on the infallible Word of God. When you believe the Bible is entirely true, then you allow it to be the foundation of everything you say or do. Someone with a biblical worldview believes that his or her primary reason for existence is to love and serve God. Now, whether consciously or subconsciously, every person who lives and breathes has some type of worldview. A personal worldview is a combination of all you believe to be true. And what you believe becomes the driving force behind every emotion, decision, and action that you make. Therefore, it affects your response to every area of life, from philosophy to science, theology, anthropology, economics, law, politics, art, and social order. Everything is affected, shaped, and defined by what is, in essence, your worldview. Go and make disciples of all nations. It's always in the understanding. We're to be disciples. We're to be followers of Christ. We're to be learners under discipline. We're supposed to be transformed by that change. Yes, we're weak and fallen individuals, but, but there's something being transformed in us by the Holy Spirit and by, by the working of God within our lives. Now let me walk you through a little short-term, little, little history here a bit. In the 1960s, a movement happened within the church, an American church, that was called the church growth movement. And the concept was that, that they found certain techniques that could, that could stimulate the size of a church or gather more people. And the more people you have, of course, then something more effective is being deemed to be happening. And as a result, size became very important and the focus on numbers as an issue of success, which was never an indicator of Christianity, ever, as far as the success of Christianity. Biblically even, Gideon starts off with 32,000 guys. He finishes with 300. And that's viewed as a good thing at the end of days because those 300 were with God and they achieved a victory. Church growth movement comes along in the 60s and numbers suddenly become incredibly important. A lot of different methodologies, um, busing and, and different features that could draw people in, very attractional issues. Out of that grew increasingly uh, evangelism, the televangelism aspects, uh, attractional stuff, um, uh, sp spectacular events through the seeker movement then, which we were on the edges of for a season of time, led mostly by Willow Creek in Chicago. 
And, and they started by, by taking a poll of the area and said, what stops you from attending church? Okay, we're going to create a church that will remove all those obstacles for you. And that's what they did. Now, they stayed biblically accurate in a lot of things, but they put such a focus on the individual and on the attractional elements that after decades of ministry, that church did a study, had a study done. They, they initiated about, uh, I think it was like five years ago, six years ago. It was a multi-year study. And when it was done, it basically came in to give them credit. They published the study that said, in essence, after decades of this approach, they had failed. That people were not, in fact, closer to God, deeper in the Word, or more mature. That, in fact, they had bred an entire group of Christians that stayed at a certain point and never got anywhere else. If you wanted to go to, let's say, um, Traverse City, and you asked me how to get there, I'd say, well, first of all, you get in your car. I say, okay, I'm there. I guess that's all, right? Well, no. Then you take that car, and then you get on I-75, and if it's a weekend, you wait for two days before you get up to Traverse City. <laughs> now, if you're sitting in your car saying, well, I followed the first direction, I'm in my car. But you're not in Traverse City. You're not seeing all the things on the way up that you can see on the way to Traverse City. You're not experiencing all the things you could experience in that process, but I'm in the car. If I've accepted Christ as my Savior, I'm in the car. But if you're just sitting in that car, you're not moving anywhere. You are not growing in faith. Amen. You're not growing in Christ. And to be very blunt, you are part of the problem. Because we just sit in our car, feeling safe and secure, but with no movement, no direction. At one point in time, as we were involved with some of the Willow Creek things and stuff, and, the, and some of the concepts there, and we never got full into it. We always said, we're in this third way. There's, there's kind of these churches that are very closed, and, and, and they be good on discipleship, but they don't engage the culture at all, and you have to dress and act and talk like them before you can even get in the door. But on the other hand, there's a whole bunch of other churches that, that sit here and say, no, we will make it as easy as possible. We're not even going to talk about the cross. We're not going to talk about sacrifice. Let's not discuss the fact that our founder died and all the original disciples, except for one, die in difficult ways. In fact, we're going to talk about, about how you can become richer and healthier and wiser and better and, and, and more effective in all these ways. We're going to make it so there's nothing you have to give up at all to follow and to be part of things. We've always said, no, we're marching in this third way. We want to be relevant to the culture, but we will not be ruled by the culture. That we are going to continue to, to be discipling, but we want to, make, we want to make the gospel accessible. We know it will not always be acceptable, but we've said it should always be accessible. Language, words, phrases we use, methodologies, so people can grasp hold of it. And so we've walked in this third way. But i got to tell you, folks, in these last several years, that third way has come incredibly narrow to walk. In addition to biblical worldview, there's secular humanism. There's moralistic, therapeutic deism. That's a mouthful, which is in essence what the church is practicing today. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. We'll discuss that later. There's postmodernism, nihilism, Marxism, Eastern mysticism, and New Age. And through all this stuff that's around there, there is biblical truth. And there is the church that's supposed to follow 
and wend its way through that. That we were told to not make converts, and there's a heavy evangelistic gifting that operates over here that is fantastic, but increasingly gets to attractive things and attractional things, so that what's saving people and reaching them allegedly is within a service and not by individuals. In the extreme form of this, where a pastor skydives into the service. It's a good thing that went well. Where we go where things are the best and the brightest and the greatest because that's the American way. And we tie into those things. And we're swayed by those things. But what happens when challenge comes? What happens when difficulty comes? Here's the thing. Jesus reads this parable to us at one point in time in Matthew chapter 13. He says, a farmer went out to sow a seed. He didn't drop the whole load, evidently. He spread it around. He was scattering the seeds. Some fell along the path. The birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched. They withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop 160, 30 times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. A bunch of them didn't. They were confused. Later he said with his disciples. And he goes on and says this. Listen to them. Then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message from the kingdom, whenever an evangelistic message goes forward and they don't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. They don't even, it doesn't even penetrate them. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they're not discipled in any way. They last only a short time and when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. And there's a fourth. The seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160. So we can gather from this that of those of us in this room or those hearing any message that is turning us towards Christ, any evangelistic message, that only 25% of those individuals are going to not only pursue Christ but pursue him to the end. Three quarters of those won't. Evangelism is incredibly important. That's something that we believe in. That's something we practice. That's something we speak to. But if there's no discipleship, if there's no challenging of our views, if we think that we can just follow Jesus and keep adding things onto our life and never take anything away, then we fall into serious, serious error. Our worldview is distorted and not biblical in nature. And Proverbs 14, 12 comes up to admonish us when it says there's a way that appears to be right and everybody's doing it. And all the social media supports it. And whenever you go that way, you get thumbs up all the way around. But in the end, we're told that it leads to death. Jesus says, therefore go and make disciples. Not an issue of converts and evangelism, that's part of it, but make disciples. Early in Scripture, you'll see individuals who accept Christ and are immediately baptized. By the time of the first century, they, the methodology of the church changed. And you find that they actually required a year-long catechism to understand what it meant before they were baptized. There is a church 
that is practicing and has advocated to other churches to practice what they're calling spontaneous baptisms. At the end of the service, after an altar call, things of this nature, then they decide we're going to have a baptism. It's spontaneous, unplanned, but it's deeply planned. So deeply planned, in fact, that there are 50 of their people that they've designated to be in the group that have already been baptized that they say, the moment we say this, you stand up and rush the platform, and that'll get everyone else to stand up and rush the platform, and now we'll have our baptisms. That is dishonest. That is dishonest. But we can say, we baptized 50 people, 300 people. We have this amount of people. You know why I honor someone like Rob Marcus? Rob has faithfully served in a single church for 36 years. That's worth honoring. That we stay committed in fellowship. And I'll gotta tell you the truth. Rob and I have not always agreed. Rob loves social media. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> but we've always loved one another. We've always respected. And I trust him implicitly. He is an honest man. Go and make disciples. Those who will be there when things get hot and difficult. Those that are changed and transformed by relationship those that learn things. And it says this, teaching them to obey everything. Not just that you're saved and it's wonderful and you're great, but teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. There are all these different worldviews and then there is a biblical worldview. And I'm not talking about the controversial things of the nature of communion or different things. I'm talking about there are biblical things that are unquestioned by anyone who's a Christian. Madeline Engel, a favorite author of mine, I said before, made this incredible quote, I have a point of view. You have a point of view. God, he has view. He has view. As followers of Christ, we want to align behind that view. We want to understand what does it mean to have a biblical worldview, to see everything we do and have an action with through the eyes of Christ. Oz Guinness a writer and apologist made the statement that while the spirit of the time makes evangelism easier in a certain way, it makes discipleship much, much more difficult. Churches increasingly point to themselves and, and to them as, a, as an entity to experience. In fact, one of the great statements of those in the secret movement one time were say that, that the church is the hope of the world. And I remember saying that one time and then being unsettled afterwards. I couldn't pin out why. I understand church is the hope of the world because through the church the gospel is disseminated and people come to Christ and they are saved. And I understand that. But, but, but I've been challenged by that in the last decade plus or so of time. That the church is not the hope of the world. Its purpose is to be the witness to the hope of the world. Even if that witness is often imperfect on our part. Soren Kierkegaard made the difference between admirers and followers. The Christian philosopher, years past, he said, If you have any knowledge at all of human nature, you know that those who only admire the truth will, when danger appears, become traitors. The admirer is infatuated with the false security of greatness. But there, if there is any inconvenience or trouble, he or she pulls back, admiring the truth instead of following it. 
is just as dubious a fire as the fire of erotic love, which at the turn of the hand can be changed into the exact opposite, to hate, jealousy, and revenge. Christ, however, never asked for admirers, worshipers, or adherents. He consistently spoke of followers and disciples. The church in Afghanistan right now is sorting out what it means to be just that. The church in China, our brothers and sisters, are sorting out what it means to be just that. When we sat down with those individuals in Russia who for 30 years had spent time in the gulag only to come out at the end of time to see uh, sons and daughters who had been born in their absence that they never had seen until that time are challenged in this same way. Is the American church, are we as a church, are we dilettantes or are we disciples? Are we worshiping and following Christ because it's easy in this season of time? And where will we be when things get tough? I referenced the term quixotic. Just curious. How many of you um, recognize the literary illusion from which that is drawn? Anybody? There's a few. Let me go a little bit further, make it a little easier for you. How many of you have ever heard of a musical from years back that would have been called The Man of La Mancha? More of you? Okay. Have any of you ever heard the term tilting at windmills? How many of you? My gosh, we're going to be in education today. (laughs) Miguel de los Cervantes, the greatest writer uh, of Spanish literature, His greatest work is a work called Don Quixote, Q-U-I-X-O-T-E. It sounds quixotic, but it should be chaotic. Too confusing with chaotic, maybe. Don Quixote, this character of Cervantes, he, he begins this way. He says, may I set the stage in the musical. I shall impersonate a man, come enter into my imagination, see him. His name is Alonzo Quiana, a country squire, no longer young, bony, hollow-faced eyes that burn with the fire of an inner vision. Being retired, he has much time for books. He studies them from morn to night and often through the night as well. And all he reads oppresses him, fills him with the indignation of man's murderous ways towards man. He's watching CNN and Fox nonstop. (laughs) Occasional CNBC. And, and, And he's filled with indignation at man's murderous ways towards man, at the state of our world and how debauched it's become. And so he conceives the strangest project ever imagined to become a knight errant and sally forth into the world to right all wrongs. No longer shall he be known by, be, be, by plain Alonzo Quiana, but a dauntless knight known as Don Quixote de la Mancha. And so he breaks into song, Hear me now, O thou bleak and unbearable world. Thou art base and debauched as can be. And a knight with his banners all bravely unfurled now hurls down his gauntlet to thee. I am I, Don Quixote, the Lord of La Mancha. He says, hear me, heathens and wizards and serpents of sin. All your dastardly doings are past, for a holy endeavor is now to begin, and virtue shall triumph at last. He makes a ridiculous figure with 
with his rusty armor and, and, and riding his, his dumpy old horse. In the distance, he sees um, some windmills. And in his imagination, they're not windmills. They're, they're four-armed uh, uh, giants. And so he goes to tilt at the windmill to kill the giant and gets tangled up and goes round and round and round. He continues on in his quest and he re- meets a, a barmaid, part-time prostitute named Aldonza. Aldonza means good-natured, but it's a joke because she's anything but that. She challenges him one time and says, why do you do these things? Don Quixote says, what things? These ridiculous, the things you do, because he keeps acting honorably, he keeps seeing everything in the best in people, he keeps bringing out these different things. He sees her as this wonderful princess and lady called Dulcinea, which means sweetness. And all the other people are laughing. She's no sweet thing. These ridiculous things you do. He says, I hope to add some measure of grace to the world. The world's a dung heap, and we are maggots that crawl on it. My lady knows better in her heart. What's in my heart will get me halfway to hell. And you, Senor Don Quixote, you're going to take such a beating. Whether I win or lose does not matter. And then he breaks into another song. He says, first, it's the mission of every true knight. It's his duty, nay, his privilege. And then he begins to sing, to dream the impossible dream. To fight the unbeatable foe. To bear with unbearable sorrow, to run where the brave dare not go, to right the unrateable wrong, to love pure and chaste from afar, to try when your arms are too weary to reach the unreachable star. This is my quest, to follow that star, no matter how hopeless, no matter how far, to fight for the right without question or pause, to be willing to march into hell for a heavenly cause. And the world will be better for this that one man scorned and covered with scars still strove with his last ounce of courage to reach the unreachable stars. And so he goes on his quest to change the world, to transform it from the broken place that he sees it, to right all wrongs. He's a Christian knight in his thinking. In the end, at his death, um, Dulcinea finds him on his deathbed and reminds him of who he was as Don Quixote. They sing one final song, and then he dies. And, and um, there's a point in time earlier, or at this time, when, he's, when she's trying to draw him back out again. And, and she says, don't you remember Dulcinea? Once you found a girl and called her Dulcinea. When you spoke the name, an angel seemed to whisper, Dulcinea, Dulcinea. Won't you please bring back the dream of Dulcinea? Won't you bring me back the bright and shining glory? of Dulcinea. He rises up out of his deathbed. He sings the final song and remembers all that and the glory was and then he passes away. And, and as everyone's grieving and his, his, his servant goes out to talk to Eldonza and as they finish off their conversation there, um, he turns and he says, Eldonza, what do we do now? And my favorite part of the whole thing. He turns to him and says, this, this foul barmaid part prostitute that is so shattered and broken, hated full of men because of what had been done to her. But this man has done something that has penetrated her heart and mind in such a way as to change her very nature. So he says, Eldonzo, what do we do now? Jesus says, gathers herself together and says, my name is Dulcinea. 
And she walks from the scene. And you know that she's entered a new phase of life. That she's not going to go back to the bar. That she's not going to go back to the ways that she was. That there's something that has changed and transformed within her. The challenge of a mad night is the title of the message today. And I could leave it here with someone like Don Quixote, someone who sits here and sees the world as it should be and is so willing to, to do something about it that he rises up to, to fight those things and to correct all wrongs, to strive to do that, and so doing so changes the life of a young woman. But there's a passage of Scripture that comes to me at one point in time while Jesus Christ is speaking to the crowd. He's talking to them of his sacrifice. He's talking about what's going to happen and how he is going to redeem the world by his own death. And their response to him we find in John chapter 10, verse 20. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? Biblical Christianity is not popular. And popular Christianity is not biblical. Because biblical Christianity gives us a worldview of subtraction. It says we are broken people in need of a Savior. That when we get in that car, it's not enough just to accept Christ and get in that car, but we need to be moving in faith. That there are things in us that need to be changed. That it's by being in relationships, sometimes for decades with each other, that we are shaped and changed by one another, but most importantly by the Holy Spirit of God and a significant portion of Christians only 6% or a few more beyond that except that the Holy Spirit even exists. But Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything I command. And I am with you always. The roots of this church were Pentecostal. And while Pentecostal gets really weird sometimes, the original concept was that God's Holy Spirit is radically working in our lives. That our worship isn't just about singing songs, but that the Holy Spirit somehow inhabits that. That there's a sensitivity and intuitiveness, a perception and a vision that the Holy Spirit working within us in humility changes and transforms us. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit to convict and transform lives. And not just to transform them by salvation, but to change us by ongoing education, discipleship, and transformation. This I believe. And I believe that this next era of us as a church is to take this stand so for this next season of time, we are going to spend the next series of Sundays defining what a biblical worldview is. And every Sunday you come, I want you to listen. That would be a good start. I want you to sit here and say, do I agree with that or not? Because if you don't, stop using the word Christian. I'm not talking about the controversial issues where Christians can easily disagree. I'm talking the biblical core of what Christianity is about. This is going to be our focus going forward. They said of Jesus that he was raving mad. I don't think so at all. I think he was also someone who saw the world as standing in heaven and saw the debauchery of it and chose to ride into that world to right all wrongs. And in doing so, he penetrates the hearts and minds of not just broken barmaid prostitute females, 
but also of haughty, arrogant, powerful men. They rode into this world to change this world. That he then gave us the responsibility and the authority. When he said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me, and therefore I give it to you. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so, this next season of time begins here today. In time, I'll explain what that means for generations. But today, it begins simply with this. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ or just an admirer? Do you pick and choose what shapes your worldview? And anything that's uncomfortable to you you push away or explain away or, or just ignore? Or are we a church? Are we a church that is committed to following Christ no matter where he leads and no matter how crazy or mad it may seem? That we would join with his crusade, that we would join with his efforts to see this world transformed. Now here's the really tremendously good news. We don't do it alone. We do it with brothers and sisters. Most importantly, we do it with the power of the Holy Spirit. Without God's Spirit, His presence with us, then this is a social club or a debating society, but it's not a church. There's a passage of Scripture two of them, in fact, that I heard my father repeat over and over again that were the bedrock of which this church was originally founded on. One is that unless the Lord builds the church, those who labor, labor in vain. Doesn't matter how bright you are, how smart you are, how gifted, how ability, how much money, how much time, how much talent. If God's not building the church, then, then it just becomes this social club or this closed place that nobody ever can get into. But the other one that I always remember there's a passage where the prophet, another one of those madmen, they thought all the prophets were mad. But they could see more clearly than any of the sane people around them. The prophet, when he said, it's not by might. It's not going to be by power. But it's by my spirit, saith the Lord that things will be achieved. The challenge of our mad night is to go into the world and transform it, to right all wrongs. See barmaids and prostitutes and haughty old men brought to God. But it begins with our brokenness. It begins with our awareness. It begins with our submission. And it's by God's Spirit these things are done. In a little bit of time, we're going to go out and we're going to have some food. But before that, I want to give you something that the team wants to present that's a little bit more substantial. And so, Father, as we come to you and we close this gathering, I pray right now for those who just innocently walked in and had no idea what they were walking into. But something stirs in their heart and they're drawn to this mad knight who would transform their world. 
And this morning, something in them is drawn to the point that they would bend their knee wherever they're at within their own heart today and submit to and accept your salvation that comes at such a great cost. For the rest of us, let's be reminded of that, Lord, and let's be brought to humility today and let us recognize how these things will be achieved. We believe in God the Father. We believe in His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, through whom all things are made and saved. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. And so we begin what I believe to be the third season of this church. One that will very probably be met with persecution, certainly with misunderstandings. We'll be painted with different brushes at different times. But they, we, without question, will stand upon the Word of God. That we, with humility, will engage the culture surrounding us. And that while we will strive to be relevant to that culture, we will never be ruled by it. That we acknowledge only one Lord, Master, and King, and that is Jesus Christ. And that we will walk as a community in that faith. Father, as we leave now and as we go and partake of food, I ask your blessing upon this food, upon the fellowship, upon the relationships that will be strengthened or maybe even renewed or for the first time be a part of things here today. I ask God that you'd guide us in this next season of ministry, Lord, as we go forth. Direct us, Lord God. It may be somewhat of a quixotic adventure. It may be overly ambitious and ideal. They may call us mad, but they called you mad too. So Lord, we pursue and follow. Where you, where you lead, we will follow. Go with us this day. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. And the church said, amen, amen. God bless you all.